the future of work and learning is so intricately linked and to me as I said it's about learning agility so what we need to be learning underpinning everything else is the ability to learn unlearn and relearn. The world has never been changing more rapidly dislocating the ways we work learn and live. On the Learning Future podcast we discuss the knowledge skills and dispositions we all need for our learning future exploring insights with world-class educators researchers policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello and welcome to the Learning Future Podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today it's my delight to be speaking with Dr. Ben Hamer. Ben, it's fantastic to have you with us. And uh, I'd love, me too, right? There's some things happening in our world right now, particularly when it comes to the kind of the future of work, which I know you've got a significant amount of experience and uh, some fantastic insights to share around. Uh, First question though, what's something you've learned recently? Yeah, so look, uh, this is going to potentially show uh, (laughs) I'm not always the most educated person, but I didn't do history at school, right? So um, I don't really know a lot about um, a whole lot of really important historical events. And I'd always heard about the Cold War, but had no idea what it actually was. So I learned in the last week that the Cold War was not like an actual war, that it was just the term they used to talk about political tensions and espionage and what was playing out between the US and Soviet. So I thought that it was all guns and missiles, but uh, apparently not. That's fantastic. That's so, how did you learn about that? How did that come into your consciousness? Someone just said something in passing about it um, and just said, oh, well, the Cold War is not a real war. And then uh, from there, I just asked a few questions and realised I actually had no idea what the Cold War was. Like, there's so many things... Um, like my partner um, uh, hangs it on me as well because uh, we were watching a movie, I think it was The Post, and then at the very end of the movie they make a reference to Watergate and I was like, actually I have no idea what that is. I've heard it mentioned about 20 times but I've never actually asked the question about what it is. So it was just one of those moments where someone said it and um, you, you actually just go, yeah, I'll, I'll confess, I have no idea what this is and I probably should um, and ask a stupid question and you actually learn something from it. Yeah, well, that's the great insight. Like, are there any stupid questions? The stupid question is the ones that are asked twice, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's the second time you ask it. It's like, did you get it the first? But um, I'd, love, I'd love, it's funny that we start with history because, you know, a lot of your work is around the future, right? Like in the future of the new workforce, you know, future of workplaces. And of course, we've all kind of been accelerated into this future um, because of, you know, the pandemic. Um, but of course, there were trends and drivers before that. So, Give us a sense of kind of what you've really been working on, um, you know, as you've explored not just the past, but also the future. Yeah, look, a couple of different things. So um, the future of work, I think, is a term that means so many different things to different people, right? Um, And it's everything from um, what are we seeing really in the very near future when it comes to COVID and the way that the pandemic's impacting ways of working, um, right through to what what are some signals that we're seeing that could extrapolate out into 10, 15 years' time and what's Mm -hmm. the impact of that on work? So uh, in terms of something that's sort of taking up a lot of Um, time and commentary now it's around the great resignation so this whole notion that um, within Australia uh, 38% of uh, Australian workers are looking to leave their job in the next 12 months Um, there's a lot of 
variability in, in, in terms of people changing. So uh, three in five workers who changed in the last 12 months during the pandemic are already looking to change in the next 12 months again. Wow. Um, and then understanding, you know, what is it that workers want, how that's changed. And as we see uh, really diverse demographics and generations in the workforce, we're seeing an increasing disconnect between what leaders uh, think their people want and what workers actually want. Um, and then the final thing sort of that, that's within that great resignation, what workers want piece is then around um, how this whole notion of uh, job for life, employer for life, we're really seeing that flipped on its head. Um, yeah. I think we've anecdotally known it for a while, um, but what we're seeing now is that the majority of people who are actually looking at leaving their employer also report feeling uh, engaged and feeling trusted. So normally we would say, if you're happy, you're going to stay. Um, and it turns out that that's just not the case because as emerging oh, generations, yeah, are coming through into the workforce, um, it's this whole, you know, 17 different jobs, five different careers thing. It's to say that I really like working for you as an employer, but you just simply can't offer particular things that I'm looking for as a, a skill set or a notch on the, the career ladder or whatever it might be. Um, and so people are just wanting really diverse and dynamic experiences um and they're they're jumping around because of it and that's not a bad thing anymore yeah that's a really i mean there's so many things to double click on here ben let's let's start with let's start with the broad piece around as you say the great resignation i, I heard data it was four million workers a month in the united states that are resigning i mean 48 million across 12 month period <laughs> that's a significant problem. so uh, clearly there's something has changed potentially forever about the way that we consider our lives at work or what work is in our lives can you give us a bit of the new narrative that's emerging you know you've spoken a bit about the experiences you know the dynamism i mean there's also the kind of concept around hybrid you know there's also kind of the seed change tree change kind of great relocation, as it's sometimes called, happening at the same time. Um, yeah, what, what are some of the kind of big picture things here? Yeah, so when I think about um, what's underpinning a lot of it, so some of it's really temporal and to do with where we're at right now in terms of the post-lockdown experience, which is people have come out of lockdowns uh, and they're looking to regain a sense of control in their lives. And so one way they go about doing that is to, to change job. Um, not necessarily always for the right reasons, which is why you have a lot of people who have just left their job looking at leaving their new job again. Um, so th there's something in that. Um, but to your point, a lot of it's actually do with to do with people going through this really significant and extended period of reflection and introspection around not just what job they want to do, but the role that work plays in their life and the priority of work. And I think we've seen that shift as more people spend time in their homes with their children, with mm. their animals, um, as they uh, save time from commuting to the office. Um, as they've spent more time in their community because the only way we could catch up was going to the local park with our neighbours. Um, it, it's changed the way that we um, think about life more broadly. And so that's that's seeing people, you know, people are looking at taking a 20% pay cut if it means that they can retain flexibility and choice over how they work and, and go about doing their jobs. So that there's definitely something within that that we're going to see play out. And then just the other thing that I think that, that comes to it, which is again from the US, um, because they're sort of a couple of months uh, sort of in front of us when it comes to this sort of stuff. So 
what they've seen is a lot of the people who are leaving that you're talking about, they're not just changing jobs to do the same role in a different organization. A lot of them are doing complete 180 career changes or what they're doing is they're leaving to start up their own business. So they've just experienced the highest number on record of new business creation of people who are, whether it's, you know, the bakery or whether or not it's going out and being a a sole trader contractor advising companies and everything in between. So this Mm. gig economy um, entrepreneurial spirit is really coming out as well. Mm, That's so interesting. I I feel like it's the, you know, Scott Galloway, you know, the professor talks a lot about, um, you know, post-corona and a whole bunch of stuff. He talks about the, the pandemic was many things, but most of it was an accelerant. And so we saw the kind of, you know, in e-commerce, we saw, you know, predicted 10 years of change happen in eight-week period. <laughs> but all of a sudden, everybody was online because of the disruption into what was the existing kind of marketplace. And so I wonder, um, for this piece around the job, I mean, here in Australia, there's been a big focus on jobs. Every policy nationally has been around job, keeping jobs, helping people that are seeking jobs, right? Making job, job maker, job keeper, et cetera. And so I, I suppose my question is, um, how do we move beyond the idea of, you know, if you change jobs too often, that's a bad thing. That still seems to be baked into the consciousness that we should be protecting jobs, but actually shouldn't we be thinking about the new creations jobs, to your point around moving into this kind of gig economy, you know, creating new capital, new value, Rather than saying, well, we're going to su- support that job that's existed for a period of time, surely it makes more sense to work out, well, what's the new s- job? What's the new kind of skill set required? How do you support someone to transition? And, of course, this also has, you know, new economy and, new, you know, particularly post-COP26 mm. you know, in terms of renewables and a whole range of other industries that will be disrupted and eventually closed down in Australia, to be frank, um, is how we do that transition. So what's, what's your kind of comment around the difference between a job just some kind of construct that floats somewhere and the kind of human being that's got a skill set and a knowledge set and a mindset, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the piece we need to pay attention to there? Yeah, so, so to your point around what you started talking about, which is that with COVID and particularly when it comes to the future of work, uh, none of what we're talking about is new. It is just the accelerated uh, nature of what's happening and so it's all been brought to life and, you know, we've been seeing for some time in organisations um, particularly um, smaller on and more nimble organisations start moving to what we call agile organisational models. So, yeah. and, and that's very much around, you know, my name isn't Ben and I am a HR analyst who works in human resources and this is where I sit on the org chart. It's to say that my name's Ben and I have skills in problem solving. I understand people and organisational psychology, X, Y, and Z that goes with it. Mm. And so people find their tribe based on their skills rather than just the function they happen to sit in, which also doesn't necessarily take into account all of the work and skills they've accumulated over the course of their career up until that point. Because as soon as someone has a job title, we put them in a box that says, this is what you do and therefore this is your skill set. Um, And so now what we're seeing is this high degree of variability and movement and fluidity in the market and within organisations. And this is what I really like about the great resignation. It's shifting the mindset of leaders. A lot of the leaders in organisations are people who have had um, high tenure or who 
have had yeah. uh, sort of uh, much fewer changes in jobs and careers and organizations and, and where loyalty means something different to them. And so that's where I talk about this disconnect, this generational disconnect that's a play. Um, but now that we're starting to see this high degree of turnover, what I'm saying to, to leaders and to organizations is you need to stop thinking about how long can I keep you working in my organization, but how can I maximize the return on investment of make sure that when you are in the role and let's assume you're going to stay in a role for two to two and a half years, that it's mutually beneficial for you and for me and we both get the most out of it that we can. And then how do we support you on your next opportunity rather than just keep you there for as long as we possibly can? The other thing that plays into that, which I think from a learning perspective is really interesting, is we need to think about continually learning, reskilling, upskilling, as you just said, the green economy and the new skills that come with that. Um, we're seeing a massive disconnect um, and a reluctance from CEOs and leaders in Australia um, when it comes to that in organisations. So, you know, the statistics say something like um, you have about 60% uh, of leaders or CEOs who suggest that attracting and retaining skills is a major and key barrier to growth for them, and yet less than 30% are actually doing something about it. Um, and right. in some recent research we've done with CEOs as well, when we asked what's the main barrier to you actually undertaking a, a concerted reskilling agenda, they've said, well, what if they leave? Yeah. Which is pretty significant, like particularly when we know now that people are going to stay in their role for about two to two and a half years and CEOs are saying, well, I'm not going to get the return on investment because what if I upskill them? And, 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 you know, there's the whole thing, you know, that I think it's an age old quote where they say, you know, you know, what if I upskill them and they leave? Or what if you don't upskill them and they stay? Yeah. Um, and it's ironic that that's actually what's now top of mind <laughs> when it comes to CEOs in Australia. That's, I was going to bring up that truism as well, Ben. I, it's just, it's such an interesting, I think, mm, kind of collision of mindset at the moment. Um, and so I think to that, that question specifically, what, because we could talk about the great resignation or the great relocation. If you're a leader in an organization, this can feel like the great attrition, as it's sometimes called. And, and of course, you want to retain staff. So take us into kind of delve us deep, more deeply into the work that you do and kind of your insights. You know, how do you move, as you've talked about, to this kind of more agile, flexible environment? How do you, as, as we would say at The Learning Future, how do you make kind of the capacity to learn the most important thing about being part of a team, you know, to kind of reinvent and evolve um, into the kind of, you know, rather than, yeah, you learn, you learn to work and then you work to earn, as the saying goes, you kind of learn and work for the rest of your life, lifelong, life-wide, life-deep ways. What are some of the kind of different structures, practices that you're seeing across public and private sectors that, you know, are helping people to kind of understand that it's the skill set and the return on investment, so to speak, that is the more important thing here rather than how long someone might stay in a particular role. Yeah, so what's interesting from the research that we've just done at PwC was that when we asked workers what they want, so this study done recently, almost 2,000 Australians participated, the number, the first two things were they want to be paid well for what they do and then they want their well-being looked after. And there's something within, within both of those that, that, that actually relates to learning. So when it comes to remuneration, when we unpacked it, it wasn't that people actually wanted to be paid more. They just wanted to feel valued. Mm. And remuneration, how much someone gets paid, is a really tangible measure of what you think my skills are worth in the market. 
Um, and so that's where people are saying, well, over the last 18 months, I feel like I'm working longer hours. I'm feeling burnt out. I've, I've had a really hard go of it. And yet my pay hasn't really gone up. So you haven't really valued all that discretionary effort and extra time and effort I've put in. Um, so there's absolutely something in it that says that when we invest in the learning and development of an individual, not just for the role they're doing now, but also them as an individual, their whole self and into the future, mm. you're valuing them. Because when we're saying to organisations about, you know, pay and remuneration, they're saying, I can't just pay my staff more. It's not just about paying people more. So thinking about how learning ties into the narrative of how people feel valued and recognised. Um, and it's the same when it comes to wellbeing and underpinning that was all around work-life balance. People wanting the capacity to uh, think about and, and balance those other bits and pieces and things and hobbies in their life that isn't just work. Because as people reevaluate work, mm. it's taking a lower priority than it has in the past, which is a massive um, shift in the societal narrative. Mm. Um, so a lot of it comes down to, from a skilling perspective, not necessarily just focusing on technical skills and focusing on the role that an individual does now, but focusing on their self and personal development as part of their professional development. Um, and then the, the other thing that sort of comes to mind, um, there's a colleague of mine, Tim, who uh, is very passionate about this space as well. And he always talks about it as, as like going to the gym. So he says, if we treated going to the gym like we do treat learning and development and, and upskilling, we would go for two days at the start of the year after New Year's Eve and then would probably never go again until the next year. But <laughs> yeah. New Year's resolution, gonna, you know. <laughs> exactly. But, but if you go two days out of a whole year, then you're not going to be fit. So how can you expect to go on a two-day course um, or do sort of really static and sporadic learning yeah. and expect to be learning fit? And so it's really about how do you embed those little micro practices as part of your day-to-day -day life. Listening to podcasts is one of them. The articles you read, the people you associate yourself with, the conversations that you have, that all becomes really critical and super important within this. Um, I mean, a couple of the stats that I talk to, to leaders about is that um, we know that skills lose half their currency every five years and the individuals need to spend 15% of their working week uh, actively reskilling and upskilling for their skills to remain current. So if we think about, you know, how many hours you work a week, 15% of that time is just about reskilling and upskilling. And so we really need to, to shift away from structured uh, learning to think about how informal learning plays into that as well. Um, and, and really drive that self-directed learning within the individual because there's still a lot of finger pointing within organisations where employees say it's the organisation's responsibility, the organisation says it's the individual's, um, and we don't really get anywhere from that. And, and, and then the final thing um, which I think comes into this is the whole 70-20-10 learning construct. So, you know, the fact that or, or what's stated that 70% of how we learn uh, is on the job, 20% is mentoring and coaching, 10% is that formal and structured learning. Um, in one hand, I really like it because it's shifted the expectation away from learning is just what you do when you're sitting in a classroom. Yeah. Um, what I don't like about it in, in the workplace is that a lot of leaders and organisations have gotten really lazy and complacent because they're like, as soon as you show up to your shift, as soon as you open your laptop, as soon as you start for the day, you're learning. And my, my responsibility to support that is absolved because as long as you're doing your job, you're learning. 
Um, so it's how on the job you actually structure and curate and elicit those learning experiences. So managers need to understand an individual's uh, professional development aspirations and allocate tasks and structure work in a way that brings that out. But then also they need to recognize their role as a coaching and mentor. And so after they've gone about doing a particular task or activity, have the conversation, the reflective piece around what did you learn, what worked, what didn't work. Um, we don't do enough of that either. And I don't think middle managers are actually trained with the capability to be able to play that role in organizations too. Gosh, some fantastic insights there, Ben. Uh, reminds me of a John Dewey quote, of course. You know, we don't learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on experience. And I think that's, you know, the idea of uh, how good are the questions we're asking, how often are we asking the same question. Um, oh, there's so, again, so many things I want to explore here a little bit. Uh, take us in, into the future. And I know this is always dangerous territory, right, because none of us know what's going to happen. But if we kind of act as futurists and think about different scenarios, I'm really interested in, in, in what you said about um, kind of the, well, the idea of the structure, the life-work balance conversation, because there is this idea of showing up fully at work as well. That's sometimes, you know, the idea of can, is life-work balance the right framing? Could we think about life-work integration? And is there, and I think for all of us, unless you've been somehow protected on an island from, from the pandemic, kind of our lives and our work have just so, for, for many of us, not all of us, and there's been a, quite a big inequity in this as well in terms of knowledge workers um, and blue collar workers, but, you know, this idea that everything's been entwined, you know, um, as an aside, I think back to the one, the, the video that went viral about someone that was doing a cross on live TV and his daughter, I think, walked in the background and then his wife came and grabbed the daughter and everyone was like, oh, that was so funny and unprofessional. But that's been the reality for everyone. It's kind of this mixture. So how do we understand the concept of life-work balance in a sense where we still want to show up at work, realizing it's still part of life, but in a way where the kind of well-being thing isn't lost in that, not where it kind of it becomes, you know, we live to work as opposed to work to live. Yeah, well, I think one of the real benefits of um, the shift from the pandemic and the move to working from home is exactly that kind of experience of the, the guy who was on the news live feed. Um, and, and it's been such a benefit because what it's done from a work perspective is it's leveled the playing field. So it, it, it's taken away some power dynamics. Research shows that females and more introverted people um, feel more empowered to perform remotely um, because rather than it being the, you know, the white male in a suit who's able to assert ego and authority in a room, we all occupy the same real estate on a screen um, and, and we're seeing into each other's homes, we're seeing each other in a more authentic and personal light um, and that really, really means something in terms of the quality of those relationships and how we experience work. Um, and what was really interesting was we found that during the 2020 um, lockdown experience, a lot of people actually said that culture had improved from working remotely because they felt more connected to their teams um, because they got to know their people in a very different and more authentic way than they had in the past. And conversations were less transactional. Um, we, we displayed a lot more empathy. So it's how do we try and capture and bottle some of that, um, particularly because we know that moving forwards, a lot of individuals are going to, to want to work hybrid, which you, the term you brought up before, between home, the office, the third space, at 74% of Australians want to work that um, moving oh, wow. forwards into the future. So it is going to be the new normal. What's going to be uh, a bit of the, the, the sort of a bit of dissonance is that a lot of organisations 
the leadership groups within those organisations haven't necessarily caught up there. So as far as work-life integration goes at the moment, it's a bottom-up bottom up push from employees right. because of this whole great resignation and the pressure that that puts on leaders. Um, they're going to have to think very differently and actually respond to the employee sentiment and what the market wants. It's not just well, this is my way or the highway and either work for me or don't. Well, if you have that attitude, no one is actually going to work for you in this market. So um, their hand will be forced. It will take a little bit of time, um, but the, all the signs are there to show that there is this shift and move towards um, life-work balance or, or work-life integration, uh, as you said. And it's it's everything from not just... Um, uh, sort of the hours we work, you've got organisations who are now moving to a seven-day work week, white-collar organisations, and they're saying you literally pick the days, the time of day that works for you as long as you get your work done. And there's a, a lot that has to go into building cultures of trust and capability yeah. within leaders and managers to, to drive and support that. But we're already starting to see shifts and signs of, you know, with hybrid working, uh, supporting remote working um, and this whole seven day work week. Some people are moving from uh, to a four day work week, um, nine day fortnights. That's that's always been on offer. But to the point around COVID being an accelerator, now it's becoming more accepted and common. And I think that's that the path will be on over the next one to two years is moving from it being acknowledged to accepted and actually then embedded in work practice. Oh, I love that. Acknowledged to accept it, to embed it. Uh, I'd, I'd love for us to kind of look at um, kind of the curve of adoption, you know, because I, I hadn't heard of the seven-day work week. I've heard a lot of, lot of commentary about the four-day work week, of course, and how some evidence that you go to the four-day work week, productivity doesn't drop. You know, you still produce as much, which talks, I think, a bit about, you know, the kind of effectiveness of the way that we kind of, I suppose, measure you know, time on task, you know, punch card, nine to five, you must be here, as opposed to really listening to the new science of things like sleep and chronotypes, for example. Well, actually, I work best, you know, from six to 9 p.m., you know, and because this only is able to be practiced in certain industries. But I imagine with AI and kind of automation, what we're seeing is kind of there'll be more and more knowledge work into the future. Um, mm. What are some of the practices that you see kind of early on in, in the curve? You know, and maybe there are examples that you can call on, um, you know, that you can see organizations have really sat down and thought, okay, well, we want to think carefully about we how we, re you know, re recruit, re retain and train staff. Um, what are some of the examples? Um, look, it's really variable because it's dependent on, um, you know, the industry, the kind of worker that they want to attract. Um, you, you've, a lot of it is uh, listening to employee sentiment. So a lot of it, not this top-down stuff, but genuinely crowdsourcing, mm. uh, listening to, to what workers want and co-designing. And, and co-design is such a buzzword, but yeah. actually getting yeah. employees involved um, and, you know, having a certain risk threshold where, um, you know, you're not going to know all the answers, you're going to listen to your people and you might not like what they say, but you're going to roll with it. So those organisations who are, are taking a little bit more risk and those people who are thinking about the individual outside of the workplace as well. So um, you have organisations, PwC is one of them, but there's countless examples who um, are driving uh, that we just announced this policy where you can essentially go and work overseas for eight weeks from another PwC office. If you want to go and visit family, for example, in the UK, go have your holiday. And then if you want to just stay on and work for eight weeks from the London office there, feel free to do so. Wow. Um, you've got organisations like Atlassian who have the work from anywhere policy. Um, they only expect you to come into work 
uh, four days uh, a year, once a quarter. Um, but if you want to come into the office every day of the week, totally up to you. Mm. Um, so that there's it's sort of giving and empowering employees choice and control. What to kind of counter your question that what we're seeing that's not working um, is organizations who are mandating that people must return to the office and must come in X number of days per week. And a lot of that is because um, people have been trusted to work from home and to, to have that empowerment and choice for however long. And then now it said, all of a sudden, we, we kind of don't trust you anymore. So uh, we don't believe that you're working effectively, that you're as productive. Um, and so they're pulling them back to the office. Um, and you, there, there was an example of when Apple did it in the United States and a whole heap of employees quit. And there was a petition from employees around changing it and Apple did. Um, so it, it's really around choice, control, trusting people, um, giving them the ability to, to design their week, their, their day, um, whether it's in the office, whether it's at home, morning, night, um, but then also giving them some tools to help them make some informed decisions as well. So mm. when you were talking about um, sort of understanding what times of day are, are optimal for you, you've got organisations that are providing um, uh, wearable devices, smart technology, like an Apple Watch or whatever, or a Fitbit, so that, and then actually giving employees information on, um, you know, your, your sleep's taking a hit or, um, you know, giving advice around, nutrition or around um, energy levels, whatever else it might be, that's not to do with how can we just get you to pump out more stuff at work, but that's just due to, you know, wanting to bring out the best of the individual, um, wanting to optimise the individual's performance in life, noting that there's just going to be a benefit in work. So not everything has to have a commercial um, sort of benefit to it. A lot of it, when you invest in the individual, the other stuff will just come. Mm, fantastic, Ben. Take take us um, slightly further upstream. You know, at the kind of nexus of education and the workforce. What are you learning through the work you're doing there at PwC and beyond about you know the way that schools can also more powerfully intersect with the kind of employment ecosystem? Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot uh, moving towards. The, the sort of the work integrated learning, partnering with industry around education delivery. Um, and I think that that plays a, a really big part into it. Um, we need to do a lot more of it because there are all the, there's all the research that shows that employers feel like graduates aren't job ready when they get into the workplace. Yeah. Um, and so it's really about giving them those experiences um, prior to entering the workplace. And it starts right from school through to any higher education experience. Uh, and that plays into it. Um, speaking of higher ed, though, I think in Australia, we have uh, probably what I believe is a wrong expectation that there's this really linear path that says primary school, high school, university job. Yeah. Um, we need to shift that. Um, you know, we're seeing more diverse, uh, even in white collar work, diverse models like the higher apprenticeship model where you can go straight from school to a, uh, you know, like a PwC, get a job and you can study at the same time. It doesn't need to be higher education. It could be that. But recognising that, well, if a lot of people are coming into the workplace and you're saying that they don't have the right skills, well, then just get them straight out of school and give them the right skills mm-hmm. um, and, and you can save time and money from doing so. So thinking about different and alternative models, um, a lot of it comes to the quality of, of the teacher. And so I think we need to be investing a lot more in teacher education, the value of teachers, 
Um, we need to uh, think more about how we get a more representative um, cohort within teachers as well, but also how do we bring some of that industry expertise into the classroom? So um, I'm a big believer that we need to disrupt the current model of teachers and we need to make pathways for people who um, can do mid-career transitions, say they're a, a statistician at a big bank and they're amazing at their job, why do we then make them do one, probably two years of postgraduate study uh, where they're not earning an income while they're still trying to provide for a family and then make them start at the bottom of the ladder as they enter the teaching profession when they have a really significant skill set and value that they can bring? So how do we just move the dial from it's the way it's always been done, the system's the system, it's tradition, it's never going to change, well, how do we think a little bit differently? Because we know there's going to be significant shortages in teachers into the future. That's going to impact the quality of education. And then we'll have downstream or upstream impacts then into the, the workforce and the skills within the workforce. So I think it needs to be a more holistic um, view. I think we talk about lifelong learning, but we still mm. think about school, higher ed and adult workplace learning as three very different and distinct yeah. things. And, and that's kind of right at the nexus of this. That's a fantastic answer, Ben. Uh, the, it's, it's funny, in some ways, because of the way systems have been designed, as an educator in a school system, you're penalised if you choose to do something. If you, cho- if you wanted to go and work in kind of another part of the ecosystem for a few years in return, sometimes that's not even possible to do, you know. And, and I, I do wonder about this when we're working with young people, you know, this new generation that are coming out that are working, you know, expecting these flexible environments. And yet, if you as an educator are not am- able to work flexibly as well, there is something about creating a liberating environment here that is flexible for everybody. Um, and in some ways, you know, seeing kind of even the old constructs of the, you know, the eight to three is when school has to happen. Well, that's only because it was designed that way some centuries ago. You know, like how, how do we think, you know, with the hybridization agenda in particular about, well, when do we come together and what's different when we are in a physical space as opposed to what can we do by leveraging technology? Um, yeah, and, and what we've been saying as well, like if we're, you've got the ACT um, in Australia who are, they're doing a parliamentary inquiry into the four-day work week at the moment. Um, and so, you know, what are some policy leaders you can pull to actually move from five to four days? Because at one stage we used to work seven days, then six days, now it's five days. Why can't it be four days? But when you start doing that um, and, and how that impacts adults and household routines, then that has to have a flow and impact to school. And so we have yeah. to be having the same conversation around why is school five days a week? Why is it face-to-face five days a week? Why is it between eight till three? Um, can we do it differently? Can we do it better? Um, I, I think we just need to be challenging and having those conversations. It's just that there's such diminished accountability in terms of who actually does that and owns that which becomes really challenging gosh these are such interesting questions aren't they and i wonder if we're having this conversation in 10 years you know what will have changed what what is inevitable that will shift and i I do think some of the old structures will fall away over time Uh, particularly the old metrics um, the way that we kind of measure success i think will will evolve but uh, it's just a question of how quickly we might get there i suppose um, well, and that's why the, the work that you're doing with Learning Creates Australia, I think, is so important because it's all about how do we actually think about the individual as a whole um, rather than just a mark that they get, um, which is a, a very narrow view of someone's abilities. And, and when we think about how that translates into the workplace, 
Um, when, When employers are saying people aren't job ready, um, what they're really trying to get at is they're employing for aptitude and attitude. They're not they're not employing someone these days for the technical skills because yeah. you can Google it. Like it's not that hard anymore. You don't want the smartest person to be working for you. It's all about learning agility. It's about um, the uh, the ability for an individual to. Um, seek out the information that they need to know, not that they need to know everything, but who do they get it from and how do they get it? Um, And that needs to translate into uh, the school system and the broader education system as well. So it's not what you teach, but it's how you teach. Uh, It's not teaching people how to be like robots, but how do you embrace the handoff? Um, And, you know, I think when when we, a lot of what we learn and teach is about rote learning, again, that's just going to be automated. That's going to be able to be retrieved at the click of a button. Don't teach kids and don't teach adults how they can go and, um, you, you know, recite something or memorize it and repeat it back to you. You're wasting your time because a robot's going to be able to do that much quicker and much better. And that'll be on our doorstep before we know it. And it already is in some instances. Mm, yeah. I think of, um, uh, I, th- I think of the paralegal profession in particular, you know, who, and many, many law firms now just using AI that search for precedent, that creates briefings. You know, again, this kind of this shape and this, this shifting nature of, of kind of the industry and how education plays a role into that. Ben, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I knew it would be. I'd love you to leave us with, uh, yeah, with some words of wisdom, with a take-home message, something from your specific vantage point in the kind of learning and employment and work ecosystem. What would you like to leave us with? Um, so I know you like to keep it short and sweet and I haven't really done that throughout this podcast. So I think the key thing for me is that the future of work and learning are so intricately linked. And to me, as I said, it's about learning agility. So what we need to be learning underpinning everything else is the ability to learn, unlearn and relearn. That's fantastic, Ben. Um, I think we see eye to eye on many things. It's been wonderful to have you on the Learning Future podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Luca. It was awesome. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.